If we go back to the late 70s, early 80s, there was what was known as the Susan B. Anthony coin. It was worth a dollar. People didn't like it because it was the size and shape of a quarter. And they thought if it's going to be worth a dollar, it should look different than a quarter. It should be bigger than a quarter. And so after three years, the coin itself was retired. And Raymond McHenry shares the spiritual lesson to think about there. He said, Christians can learn a clear lesson. The world expects believers to look like Christ, not a cheap imitation. People outside the church see too many professing Christians who look more like chump chains than the real thing, live in such a way that others will easily recognize a significant difference. We're going to look at something here from the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, the word of God is at work in you. When we live our lives truly in Christ and we look significantly different than people in the world, it's because the, the word of God is at work in you, at work in me. The phrase, the Lord says, is over 2,600 times found in scripture. So what we read from Genesis to Revelation are the words of Jesus that he is speaking to us, whether it's through Moses, through Paul, through Peter, Jonah himself, you know, whoever it was that was speaking those words are, are Jesus' words to us. You'll hear people today say, you know, Jesus didn't speak about this certain topic, whatever that topic is. The reality is that he did. It may have been through Moses. It, it could have been through David, you know, but we need to understand, you know, when Jesus spoke through Paul, he did so by sending his spirit to superintend the writing of Paul. And that way, when Paul wrote, it was precisely what Jesus intended. And that's why we say scripture is God-breathed. And that's why we say, along with Paul, the word is at work in you and me. It's the words of Jesus changing our thinking, changing the way that we see the world. Here's some things to think about. What does that mean? How does the word work in us? It quickens dead sinners. It enlightens dark minds. John Gill shares it, unstops a deaf ear, softens a hard heart, produces faith, encourages hope, delivers from bondages like sin, Satan, the law, brings comfort to hearts of the saints under affliction, trial, persecution. All these are the promise of what it means to know that his word is at work in you. You know, Tony Robbins said it well, that what you tolerate, you will never change. And if we're talking about our, our relationships, our lives, our standards, if we tolerate compromise from self that will never change if you compromise and live in sin and you tolerate that in your life you see why things continue to to look the way they look versus if somebody else says you know what i'm not going to tolerate that i don't want to look like chump change i want to look like christ and I want to recognize the, the responsibility to live in him and to see him working in me by letting his word become a part of my life you know, Tony Robbins shares there's three things that stops anybody from making a change. It is your strategy, your state, or your story. Now, strategy is not hard for most people. Most people know what they need to do to correct their relationships. Most people, if they're looking for changing their health, they understand, you know, nutrition, exercise. It's not the strategy. It's usually the, the state or the story that stops us. The state. You know, if you're in a lousy state, a state like fear, frustration, upset, like you see in the culture, you're going to operate at a different level than somebody else that's in a state of gratitude and love. And here's the thing about state, though. We can put ourselves in a state of gratitude any moment. Just stop and you say, here are three things I appreciate about this moment or life. When you operate from a place of love, think about if you're coming home at night from work and you're filled with energy and passion and excitement, you're going to have a different response to your family than if you come home and you're tired and frustrated and angry. 
So state stops people. The other thing that stops people is the story, the story that we tell about how something can't change or won't change. And there's all sorts of stories in the world today. And we're going to look at some of that here and how we can step out of that so we're not looking like that cheap chump change counterfeit. Rather, we look like Christ as his word works in us. And some examples we'll see about how that can happen starting here today. Think about Jim Rohn, you know, a great speaker, a motivator, inspiring person. He passed away a few years ago, but his life was changed because of an abusive father. Now, many people had that story for their life, and maybe they took a different course, but Jim Rohn said what happened for him. One day he asked his father for money about something that was important to him. His father said, if you want money, then you're going to have to beg me for money. And Jim Rohn said that moment changed his life where he said, I don't want anybody to ever feel they have to beg for somebody to give them kindness and decency. So he spent the rest of his life with a different story, showing people love and kindness. One of the quotes he said that's, that's beloved is, never wish life were easier, wish that you were better. So let's talk about a few things here about maybe some things we don't understand happening because maybe our perspective or the story or the state that we're in is not at the best place. You know, Peter Malik wrote a, a book here, just came out a few days ago, but he shares, you know, we're at one of the wealthiest times in history. Life expectancies are continuing to rise. You know, if you look at science, they'll, they'll say, you know, there's no reason and they don't understand why people don't live to 120. That's what clearly should be happening. If you read scripture, the Bible says that as well. And I believe that'll fully be happening before we know it. But life expectancy is already increasing each year. What about poverty? In the 1800s, 44% of the world was in extreme poverty. Today, that's less than 10%. But as Peter Malik says, with all the good news, why doesn't it feel like we are making progress? Well, one of the reasons is we ask the wrong people. You know, Warren Buffett said, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Same thing, never ask a doctor if you need a prescription or a surgeon if you should have surgery. Don't ask somebody that's in a miserable relationship you know, if you should get divorced, you know, be careful who you ask. You ask the culture, they're going to put out a certain answer. And we'll see why that is here in a moment. But if you look at things from the standpoint of who you are in Christ, who he is in the world, who he is driving all of history to all things are brought under his feet, you're going to see that progress is being made. And we'll see some clear examples here in just a moment. You know, Psalm 51 is a psalm that martyrs would sometimes sing on the way to execution. It shows somebody as an example that word changing their life. Some verses out of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. That's a different place of living than we see what's going on in culture, unfortunately, where people are about self and sin, fears and doubts. You know, Tony Robbins shares about a person he was working with named Jason. And Jason had this great marketing company, very successful. He sold it in 2004 for $125 million. He wanted to uh, increase his wealth and continue to be an entrepreneur. So he went to Vegas and he built these high-rise condominiums, sold them to, to millionaires and entertainers. And his net worth on paper went from 125 to $800 million dollars. He had all this influence, people calling him for favors. You know, he was well-known and popular. And then 2008, the housing market crashed. And Las Vegas lost more value in housing than any place. Some went 65% loss. 
And now this person who had $800 million on paper, he owes $500 million. Now, a lot of people take that story and they might give up, but this person is trying to pay back everything that he owes and is working very hard to turn that around. You see, there's a different place when you live in you know, a state of mind that says all things are possible. Today, some studies that were done recently, though, show you know, Americans that can handle a $500 emergency less than 40%. We make choices maybe that are not the best choices sometimes. And we get caught up in more problems because maybe those choices, they didn't serve us or anybody else. And we'll see a a different way to live life here in a moment. But consider Peter Malik's question, though. Why doesn't it feel as if we're making progress? Well, let me give you a couple examples of why that feels like we're not when we truly are. Now, the primary purpose of media doesn't matter what channel you're watching, what you're reading, it is not to inform, it is to make money. You can watch the weather channel and if it's sunny, 75 degrees, you're not gonna stay there very long. But when the weather channel, they get your attention with a hurricane, a tornado, their ratings go through the roof. And so media is not there to inform, they need to make money, that means they have to get your attention. They know to get your attention, extensive psychology studies have been done. The brain is not designed to make you happy, it's designed for survival and it notices things that are fearful or stressful. It pays attention to things that are threatening and experts know this in marketing and so they put things on television that are threatening or fearful, produce anxiety and we watch it because it's something happening subconsciously. There's a great quote, nobody knows who said it but it says the mind has a mind of its own. You know, the brain is designed to to look for the negatives, But we have to take control of our mind and say, my mind is in Christ. My mind is in him and his thinking is becoming my thinking. His word is working in me. So I start to have the mind of Christ. The word of God is at work in you and me. So how do you make that word work in you and me? Well, here's a simple thing. I learned this from an instructor, but think about if you were holding a Bible in your hand and say you only tried to hold it with your thumb, well, you wouldn't be able to hold it very well. But if that thumb represented a spiritual discipline, we could say the thumb represents hearing the word of God. Very important, gathering together and studying together and listening to scripture being read and taught. So if you just hear it though, your thumb, you're not gonna be able to hold a Bible. So you go home hopefully and you read your Bible. So that's the pointer finger. And now it'd still be hard to hold a Bible with those two fingers. Next, you study scripture. So now you have three fingers with your middle finger representing the the study, but that's still very hard to hold on to a Bible. You know, the fourth and fifth fingers, that is memorize scripture, meditate on scripture, and you now have all five fingers used. You know, you hear it, you read it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate, but somebody can still take scripture, the Bible, out of your hands too easily. That's why we need the sixth application which if you think about your, your palm represents that, you know, to hold on to scripture, to apply it. And if you were to grab scripture and hold a Bible now with closed fingers in your palm, nobody could easily take that from you. Spiritually, it's the same thing. You know, when we hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, meditate, but then we apply it. That's when it gets put into our heart. That's when it becomes our thinking. That's when Christ then, we represent him not as that 
cheap change, but as authentic believers. Let me show you something that's happening subconsciously. Give you some examples. Extensive studies psychologically to show how people are trying to get subconsciously to your brain, to my brain, and you may not realize you're being manipulated, but once you do, now you can be free. As Jesus said, he sets us free indeed. Also knowing this will save you some money here. You'll see in a moment. If you watch a movie, there's a, a principle. They call it put a clock on it. Put a clock on it. It's just a, a cheap director you know, ploy where if they need to create tension in a movie to hold your attention, they'll put a clock into the, the plot and make it a key. So maybe it's a, it's a bomb and you'll see the countdown of the bomb. And what's going on in your brain, your brain notices that because that seems threatening. Or maybe in the film, somebody calls and they've taken a hostage and they say ransom's due in 24 hours. Uh, again, that creates a sense for your brain subconsciously even to pay attention to that scene. It's again, kind of a cheap ploy, but it works. But here's one, this extensive studies to show how this impacts shopping. Think about a coupon and just think about what do you think is the most important wording on a coupon to get your attention. They found the keyword of a coupon to get anybody's attention is to use the word limit. Say limit five items, limit 10 items. Putting that on there, our subconscious reads that and thinks this must be something I need to buy because it's gonna not be available any longer and subconsciously you feel like it must have more value. You feel some stress because it must be going to, to not be available soon. That's why it's limited. And so study after study shows just that one word limit impacts people massively on a study and how much they buy. So if it says limit 10, you may not buy 10, but you will buy seven or eight rather than one or two items. If it has limit 15, you may not buy 15, but you will end up buying 11 or 12 rather than two or three. It's study after study shows this. Again, why do marketers do this? Because they know, reach the subconscious, where your brain is always looking for scarcity and fear and anxiety. Tap into that and it, it's very simple. Here's another example of that. It's called loss aversion. This is why there are storage warehouses in every town now where people store things they're not going to touch or use, maybe haven't seen in decades. Loss aversion is this idea that if I feel like something is mine, I don't want to give it up. Again, this is the subconscious mind that starts to think if I'm giving it up, I'm losing something and that feels uncomfortable. So we tend to hold on to it. How does this work in marketing? Go to a jewelry store. They're going to put a watch on your wrist, a necklace around your neck and say, that looks great. Now you have a sense of ownership. You have way more chance of buying it because you feel like it's yours. You don't want to take it off your wrist and give it back. You'll probably have a much more likely chance studies show to say, you know what? I'll go ahead and buy this. Car dealers do the same thing. They hand you keys, just take it for a test drive. They know that's half the sale. Get you in the car, you're test driving it. You start to feel it's yours. When you come back to the lot, you're much more likely to buy the car because now you feel like it's it's yours in a sense. That's loss aversion. You know, my wife and I bought a van to transport our mini horse here. And, and you know, it was interesting. We got a couple people sent us videos once we looked at their vans at these dealers. And, and the videos, you know, they were the same thing. They're, they're filming the van and they say, hey, your van is ready. I, I just washed and waxed your van. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Trying to get us to feel ownership and 
that loss aversion, you know, where you once you think it's yours, you don't want to give it back, so you end up buying it. So it's it's a very effective tool. So think about this though. From here's an example of technology advancements. Now think about the spiritual application of this. And if you make some changes, I make some changes spiritually, just a one degree shift, and you go out, you know, three months from that and see the difference. Think about this. You know, if you double technology 10 times, that technology becomes 1,000 times better. So think about a phone. You know, go back to, you know, 10 years ago when it, it really didn't do a whole lot. And now your phone, a smartphone, has more technology than the space shuttle. So if you double something 10 times, there's a compounding that takes place. It becomes 1,000 times better. And here's a question. What if you double it 20 times and then 30 times. If 10 times is 1,000, is 20, 2,000, and 33,000? The answer is pretty remarkable. I'll share that here in a moment. You know, the psalmist continues, Open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. Once we, again, allow that word to, to work in our heart, we declare praise, and we seek to honor Christ. Michelangelo shared this, the greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss, but that it is too low and we reach it. When you understand compounding from small actions, how they build up, whether that's a positive thing or if it's negative actions that build up, the impact that they have. When you understand compounding, you understand the small things that seem so small, maybe again, moving from just hearing the word to reading it and then moving to studying it, then memorize it, meditate it, but then most importantly, apply it. The compounding is incredible. Here's compounding just technology-wise. Again, if you double something 10 times, it becomes a 1,000 times better. If you double it 20 times, it becomes a million times better. Double it 30 times, becomes a billion times better. That's the power of again, of compounding. Now, if you and I do something in our relationships to improve how we talk to our spouse or treat them, a a one degree shift in our discipline spiritually, three months from now, the impact that'll have, compounding small things on top of small things makes a massive difference. So here's something from Peter Malik, and just thinking about, again, if we're making progress, why doesn't it seem like it? As I've made clear, hopefully, well, that's the media's role to make it sound like things are always worse than they are. But here's some examples of how things are changing radically. And you may not know some of these things. There are new technology coming out. But think about this. In Africa, women spend 40 billion hours a year walking to get water. We now have technology that exists to draw 500 gallons of fresh, fresh water every day from the air itself. Think about farming for a moment. One cow consumes 11,000 gallons of water. They, they take up several acres of land. Now you go to a restaurant, half of your cost of that meal is due to transportation, bringing in the ingredients and the food from all these different locations. Well, technology exists now to grow 30 acres of food on a one-acre climate-proof warehouse. And those are gonna start appearing in places. You know, as populations grow, We can take one acre and start to grow things, maybe not native to that area, in a climate-proof warehouse, and it creates the same food as 30 acres. 
technology changing in a massively important way in many places. And you and I have to come back to a place then and say, you know, if, if technology can change, little steps upon little steps, spiritually, what differences can we make impacting our families and our communities, adding little steps upon little steps? Sidney Harris, writer from the 1900s, passed away. He said the three hardest tasks in the world, though, they're not physical or technological. He said is to return love for hate, to include the excluded, and to say I was wrong. You see, spiritually, our life, we don't want to be like that Susan B. Anthony coin that was just seen as chump change. We want to live with a standard that says, you know, it's not my story that's going to stop me. It's not my strategy. It's not my state. I'm going to choose to live in a beautiful state. My story is going to be that I can do all things through Christ. My strategy is going to be that his word becomes alive in me. You know, David said, I hide that word in my heart that I sin not against you. He ends Psalm 51 by saying, my sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. Oh God, you'll not despise. So let me show you an incredible example here of somebody who kind of brings all of these things together. The ripple effect of making one step on top of another. Somebody that overcame a, a disempowering story. And what impact his faithfulness, the word of God in his heart, made a remarkable story. The gentleman, his name was Julius Hickerson. A few years ago, as a doctor, he also felt a call to be a missionary and had a tremendously successful career, could have had you know, a lot of wealth here in the U.S., but he sensed that God was calling him to South America, specifically to Colombia. And when he told people, they told him that that was a dangerous thing to do. One, he's giving up a, a lucrative career, but two, it was a dangerous area. Spiritually, not a, a place of, you know, tremendous inspiration or hope by any means. And they said, you know, what if you go down there and you waste your life? What happened for Julius Hickerson? He went to Columbia, South America, and for two years he practiced medicine. And he also shared the gospel. And the people, they were grateful for what he did as a doctor. But after two years of serving the people, sharing the gospel, there was not one person there who put their life in Christ. So you imagine, again, the stories that he might have been thinking at that point and what was going through his mind. And one day, Julius Hickerson, he was on a small plane taking supplies to another village. Unfortunately, that plane crashed and he passed away. You know, the mission agency, they said, you know, what do we do? Should we send another missionary there? You know, he's been there two years and, you know, nobody's responded to the gospel. And so they decided not to send another missionary to Columbia, South America. They said, what's the, what's the point? But finally then, after some years passed by, they decided to revisit, should we send somebody to Columbia at this point? And again, you know, he was there. There was no spiritual turnaround. You know, the people are not responsive to the gospel. They decided to send some people there to take a look and maybe investigate sending more missionaries to Columbia, South America. 
And what happened is these people got there and they got off the plane. They traveled into these villages. And when they arrived where the doctor was, they found all these churches. They talked to some people and explained who they were and that they were there to share the gospel of Christ. And these people said, you know, we are living the gospel of Christ. We know the gospel. It's our very life. And he stopped and he said, you know, I don't understand. I understand Julius Hickerson was here for two years and not one person believed in Christ. And they told him, you know, that's exactly right. When the doctor was here for two years, he treated us medically but we did not respond to his preaching. But when he died, you know, we were gathering up his belongings. And when we were gathering up those belongings, we found a book that he was writing. And that book was the Bible, and he was translating it into our native language. And we started to read that book. We started to live that book. And one by one, everybody there began to give their life to Christ and build these churches. We don't want to be people that are chump change, cheap imitations. We want to be authentic followers of Christ. They say, you know what? There's no story going to stop me. My state's not going to stop me. My strategy's not going to stop me. I'm going to move forward and, and represent him. That he might truly be honored by the way that we live our life and recognize and confess and know the word of God is at work in you who believe.